Father, thank you so much that you value us. Thank you that we are of eternal value to the point where, Lord Jesus, you would engrave us upon the palms of your hands. And we know that those marks were with you even after the resurrection. So therefore, they are with you even now as we consider this subject. Guide us to see how we can be kingdom seekers and seek your kingdom because you value us that much, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in this series of kingdom seekers, I'm going to introduce to you another parable. This is one that's maybe more up our alley as far as a recent story. This story is partly true and partly my imagination. So if you forgive me if you don't like my imagination, but imagine there you are in London. And as London and these outlying areas, they each voted whether to stay in their European Union or to Brexit, to leave it. And so as you go along, you can pull up pictures like this one off of Wikimedia, and you see that some of those people actually put signs up in their windows, vote, leave, in just two words, or Brexit on some signs. And so imagine you're one of those individuals, and you see this Brexit as an, a chance for economic prosperity for you. Maybe not for the whole country, maybe not for the European Union, but at least for you. And so I want you to imagine an individual just like that. How he's sitting in his apartment, he's been plotting and planning, he's gone up through the business schools, inched his way up through it. Eventually now he has a plan in place. Because once the Brexit takes place and once currency begins to drop and all kinds of things happen, you can easily swap up, swoop up land and different things. So he has all these plans in his mind of what he could do with this Brexit. So he gets a job over at the London Stock Exchange. He begins to carry out this plan, and when the Brexit takes place, he somehow has an influx of capital he didn't have before because of his different schemes that he had developed. And one of them is that eventually he wants to not just work and have that job over there, because he gets it, but he wants the places that surround that London Stock Exchange as well. So he begins to use the Brexit as an opportunity to do that. He begins to, he begins to hire high-power lawyers and sue his rivals, and they can't, some of them can't pay in court, so eventually they lose, and he outwits them in court, gets their property, and that's not enough. He has the job, he has the car, he has, you know, the, the planes and all of that that he wants, he has the building, and then he remembers from his childhood a little place out in the country, because <clears throat> that's where he grew up, and as he's out there one day, he says, you know, that farmer out there, doing a good job but I want his property. Now, what's that poor farmer going to do against somebody who now basically runs the London Stock Exchange and, and has all this power and has high-power attorneys and eventually can outweigh this farmer in court? Not much of a chance, right? The farmer has hardly any chance compared to that. Because, as you know, farmers, most of them are working a part-time job and farming at the same time. And so this farmer goes to his part-time jo job, comes home one day, and there's a piece of paper on his door, basically a lawsuit of being served some papers. And as he goes to court and it gets drawn out, so does his bank account. If you've ever been in a long-standing lawsuit or something like that, you know this can happen. Can't afford it, eventually has to default on the place, and guess who's waiting to pick it up? That businessman. Now he has the farm, he has the place in town, and one night as he's in town looking, thinking about, now I have that farm I grew up near, I, I have that now, I have the, my, my job still, I'm actually now the CEO of the London Stock Exchange area, some businesses around there, and now not only do I have the skyscraper, but now I want more. I want the whole 
city of London. I want, and he just begins to think grandiose thoughts. Now you could find chinks in my armor of this story, but nonetheless, the main point is there. I want more. It was not enough to get the job from after I got my education. It was not enough to get my rivals out of the way. It was not enough to own the building that I always dreamed of in, in the city and the farm in town. It was not enough to basically climb to the top of the corporate ladder. I want more. And so that one night as he's there looking over, and this is a picture of London at night, he's there saying that to himself. He's all alone. He doesn't have very many friends. As you can tell, most people aren't going to want to be around him. There could be another lawsuit around the corner. And as he's saying this to himself, more, more. And he gets so vehement about it, he shouts out there, gets out on his, on his deck and says, I want all of this. He then all of a sudden keels over and has a heart attack. Of course, he's got nobody who's around him that much. Didn't plan on dying. Didn't have his will all taken care of. Didn't really have an heir as well. So who gets all his property now. Well, you can research the laws of England. You can figure that out yourself. Basically, not what he had in mind. And so as I think of a story like that, maybe it's not a story that has been reported on very much. Maybe it's not something you've ever heard about before. I do, do know people, even growing up, that had this type of ambition, this type of ambition to the point where once they got their throat cut by one person, they became a cutthroat and, and they ended up becoming a millionaire on the backs of other people in lawsuits. So the method is not unheard of. But that thought, I want more. More of what? I mean, can you imagine how worthless even the possessions I've mentioned are? The lights go out in London and, and, and basically a power grid failure and your building with air conditioning is basically worthless at that moment, isn't it? Your farm is probably your only thing that you'd have going at the time. And so he dies, and he has a gravestone that eventually fades over time, almost like this one here. You can hardly even read this stuff on it. No one remembers him. No one really remembers his story. He was a headline every once in a while, but that was it. Would that be a desirous fate or a sad fate? Well, Deep down, I believe, we have this human nature desire for more things. All you got to do is, if you move every few years like I do, you know, four, five, six years, you, you notice how many things you have. And you, you begin to downsize because you don't want to pack that truck full of, you know, just things that are worthless, right? But I begin to notice how, much, how many things we have, a tool for this and, and this type of thing. And and we, we crave more things. And it's not wrong to crave nice things. It's not wrong to crave nice clothes, peaceful settings, maybe even ideals that have been put before you. But what if the craving becomes your morality? What if that becomes your sole focus? What if that is your sole focus? I believe those ambitions would then be unholy ambitions. And I'm not the only one who believes that. As you go and you think about this idea of ambitions gone astray, look at Nebuchadnezzar. Here he is in Daniel chapter 4. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power for the honor of my majesty? There's ancient stories of this same type of mentality. He's not just climbed up and, and gotten the farm outside of town and the apartment inside of town. But he has actually 
eliminated his enemies through warfare, through tactics. And if you, if you doubt that, just read the Bible. You'll find there are individuals he's willing to throw in the fiery furnace, ones who are even honest amongst him. In Jesus' day, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, this, this rich landowner says, this will I do. I will pull down my barns, build greater ones, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. You notice the, the correlation between Nebuchadnezzar and this, this individual who builds bigger and better, which is basically like the story I told you at the beginning. Same type of story, ancient time. And I will say to my soul, to myself, Self or soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul or your life will be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? You've made all of this provision, but it's not going to be yours. Whose is it going to be now? There's no record of an heir in this story. There's no record of, of anybody to take over that inheritance. There's really no, nobody but himself that he's thinking about, just like with Nebuchadnezzar. Now we know with Nebuchadnezzar, he eventually is converted. This story here, we have no such conversion that takes place. But what, as I read this story, I said to myself, he's talking to a group of people, not just his disciples. He's talking to more than his disciples. But what does he now turn to and say to his friends after telling this story? He tells them something. He speaks to the crowd, and then he's going to talk to his friends. He says to the crowd, to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. So take heed. Watch out or look closely at your life. Watch out for covetousness. Watch out for that desire for more. Watch out for that desire that would even eliminate the other person, that would thingify the other person so you could get rid of them. Because if they're a thing and not a person, then they're just standing in your way. So watch out for covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of things which he possesses. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul, your life will be required of thee. And whose shall those things be which you have provided? And he continues, now this is all a summary. You can read verses 16 and onward, but he goes from here and goes all the way down to here, and here's the bottom line. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. If you're just laying up treasure for yourself and I'm just laying up treasure for myself, then it almost becomes a competition, doesn't it? It almost becomes a works mentality. And so this is what Jesus says to the crowd in Luke 12. Now, I'm sure his disciples took note because they wrote it down. Be rich toward God. And now he turns to his friends, his disciples. He says something to them. He says actually three main things. He says, you were valued you are glorious. You don't need to pursue all of these glories. You are glorious. You are valued. You are, and there's a third thing we'll come to later on. You have a kingdom. And so he tells his friends in Luke chapter 12, his disciples, his friends, you are valued. He says to his disciples, therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither the body, what you shall put on it. The life is more than meat. The body is more than raiment. Is he saying to go hungry? Is he saying not to wear nice clothes? Is he saying basically to wear rags or some kind of black robe on the street and gather what people can throw at you? He's not saying that. Some people take it to mean that. You find whole orders of religious people have, have basically taken it to mean I shouldn't own anything. That's not what he's saying. As you keep reading, he says, that is not your focus. Consider the ravens. 
So this is not your focus, to go for the clothing, to go for the food, to just go after things of life. That's not what you're to be looking at. You're to consider something higher. And he says, look at the ravens. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? So they don't do all of that. Not that you shouldn't have some storehouses and be able to feed yourself, but he says, look at the ravens. They are not preoccupied with building a barn. You ever see a raven build a barn? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. They don't build barns. They don't store. Now, we do know that some of them have caches of food here and there, but they're not totally preoccupied the way this individual in the story is. And he says, and which of you taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? I know some would like to be taller or some would like to be wealthier and all of this, but, or better looking, but who can change themselves? Only the creator can change you. That's the point. He's made the ravens. He's made the, the, the food even grow so you can even eat it. He's given you the strength. I mean, Psalm 3.8, I arose, I, arose, I awoke because the Lord sustained me. So he gave in his sustenance. And which of you, taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do the thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? So you can't even change yourself. You, therefore, you, you're not the one who's the author of what's in the storehouse or what you were eating. Now consider the ravens. Now this is interesting. Consider the ravens. They're fed. I know in Babylonian culture, the ravens were birds of sacrifice. If you look at a leper being cleansed, they would use two ravens. The Bible story has two clean birds, one that would die, one would go free. The Babylonians have two ravens, okay? They would use it for sacrifice. If a leper was cleansed, which we have no record of in the Babylonian culture, it ever really happened, but they would have two ravens. So they were used in ancient Near East for sacrifice. Some, some cultures around them revered them for wisdom. The Israelite culture saw them as unclean scavengers. So, all right, Israelites, consider the raven. It's unclean. It's a scavenger. And what's his point? I provide for the raven, provide for the sparrow, I provide for you. Consider or think, think for a while about the raven. Now, if I think about the raven long enough, one Bible story comes to mind automatically. Right? The three and a half years that we find God providing for Elijah in the wilderness. And if he can feed the ravens and then send them to bring his, pers his person of, that he loves food, then what do we have to fear then? A time of famine when basically there's very little food, there's, there's a drought, there's all this going on. What do we have to fear then if he can send a bird to find food and then bring it to us? A lot better than uh, fast food joints, right? The bird brings it right to you. It knows your address. You don't even have to pay a tip. It comes right to you. And so as I think of the Brexit scenario, and I think of people that are, that are striving for money and lands and all of that, I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us and give us things. He does. But I believe he wants us to be pursuing a different exit. And that exit is a kingdom that's not of this world. And so Jesus doesn't stop by telling us we're valued. He doesn't top, stop by saying, hey, imagine the ravens. He actually says, now, imagine the lilies as well. So you're not only just valued, because I, I give you well beyond what the raven can get, and I provide for you, but consider the lilies, how they grow. You could just pause there, probably for an hour, 
if you wanted to. You know, Google lilies and, and start looking at all the, how they grow and the biology and everything that goes into it, how they don't toil or spin. I mean, God has planted within them this beautiful flower. If you don't like the lily, then find a different one. That whatever flower it is that's your favorite, he has planted within it glory. Like those bushes right out there in the front of the church. They weren't very glorious a few weeks ago. You notice what's happened? I, I went on vacation. I come back and, wow, look at all those flowers out there. He's planted within these bushes and these flowers, these abilities to be glorious. Beyond even what Solomon had in all his glory. And Solomon was not arrayed like one of those. If then God clothes the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. Your Father knows you and knows me. He knows we're more valued and glorious than the lilies and the ravens and all of that. And so we're to seek him, and he'll take care of the rest. Does that mean I don't go to work? Oh, I'll just stay at home and it, you know, he'll do what I want. He'll bring me everything I need. That doesn't mean that at all. You look at Paul's writings in Thessalonians. If you don't work, you don't eat. There's some, some things in Scripture, the principles that could go against that idea. But nonetheless, recognize that the blessings you have are from him, and you are not to seek blessings that are outside of his will. You're to seek something else. What happens if we're so focused on earthly things? Well, that's our answer for our young people. So, all right, young people, there's your answer there. Luke 21, 25 through 28. You mark it down on your sheet while we look it up. Luke chapter 21, 25 through 28. What happens if we look at fearful things all the time? Not that we shouldn't be aware of what's going on. I mean, the shooting, Dallas, you, could, it's just, you don't even have to be on the news to hear about these things. I was on vacation. I didn't even have the internet, didn't have all these different gizmos and gadgets I'm used to. And people are talking about it. You can hear about all these things, right? So it's not that internet and all that's bad. It's that notice how our media is focusing on fear all the time. And what's, what's the problem with this? Look at Matt, Luke chapter 21, verse 25 through 28. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, where perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It will be beyond their control. Things will be out of control. And what are the nations doing at that point? They're being fearful. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in, cloud, in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, what are we to do? Look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draweth nigh, as the King James Version says. So what happens if fear and we don't recognize our value and that we're glorious in God's sight. We pursue all of these things. Then all of a sudden, there's disruptions and we become very fearful and eventually fear controls us. Love does not control us. That's really the problem with pursuing things rather than the creator of all things is that fear could eventually envelop us and hold us in its grip and crush us. You wonder why, like, for instance, the Great Depression, lots of people committed suicide 
I mean, they, they, were, they were focused on their possessions, and eventually they were gone. And there were, there were people who committed suicide when they couldn't go to the bank and get their money. Same thing happened in different eras of time in Earth's history. They were so connected to that. Would I be willing to end my life if I couldn't provide for my family immediately like I'm used to doing? It's a real choice, right? I would not be willing to do that. But that's because I've detached myself from those things. And so Luke 21 tells us we must be seeker, not be seekers of earthly wealth, prestige, or glory. Not that God won't put you in places of prestige, wealth, or glory, but we should not be seeking those for the sake of seeking those. You see the difference? We must be a different kind of seeker then. So Jesus tells his friends after he talks to the whole crowd, and here he is, he turns to his disciples. He says, your value, look at, look at the raven. You're even more valuable than he is, and I provide for him. Look at the beautiful flowers. I provide for them. Look at that beautiful, glorious clothing, if you will. You are glorious. And then he tells his friends, you're a child of the king. Be kingdom seekers. Look at Luke chapter 12. And seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind. I was really curious about the, the, those words, doubtful mind, because most English versions have two words there, but the Greek has one. It's like a meteor. And if you know about meteor showers and astronomy, it's not like meteors are going to be right in front of your sight all the time. They, they fall, right? And that's the word they use here. Basically, of mind that is downcast or meteorite-like, that falls, that fades. So he's telling us, don't seek what you eat or what you shall drink, nor be of falling mind or this downcast mind, somehow, if that becomes your total focus, you can easily become downcast. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. And so fear is going to rule us unless we do what Jesus says next. But seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things, that's the eating, that's the drinking, that's that freedom from that downcast mind, that doubt, that freedom what you eat, what you drink, those blessings that we all experience will be added to you. You and I will be taken care of. So if all of a sudden the stock market crashes, right? It's going gonna, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna to hit a top of, its bubble's going to eventually get to the point again, right? And if you haven't noticed by now, it's a generated crisis. And because if you look, there's only a certain percentage of the American population that even invests in the stock market. And who are they? Typically, managerial or higher type rankage. And those individuals then are controlling the whole country in a way by, by causing these things. And guess what happens when the stock market crashes? Some of your real estate prices go down, and guess what happens? They swoop up your real estate. I want that condo in Italy, so I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm hoping Italy will fall, and I'm going to swoop up that condo in Italy. The solar power plants, you can look this up on the internet. Huge solar power pl plants in, excuse me, uh, factories, if you will, or not factories, Jake, what's the right term? All right. So like solar power uh, generators that are land, pieces of land where they place all these solar power uh, panels and they've been, okay, megawatt facilities. If you just research that, you'll find that during the, the 2008 crash, people were looking at basically Europe and they swooped up some of those, those facilities. So you find that we, if we're focused on that, it's going to go up and down with how certain powers that be want it to go. But if we look at God, then he will provide for us what we eat, what we drink, this freedom from all that doubt. He will add that all to us. And then he says, you will not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure, good pleasure, 
meaning he thinks well of you. It's like a father who, I mean, think about a father who owns the whole universe. Will he not then provide for you? Doesn't he think well of you? And the proof of him thinking well of us is no further than the cross. We can look at the cross and see how, how the father's pleasure is really fulfilled. He, he, it's not like earthly eros, pleasure. It's talking about here this idea of a father loving a child to the point where he'll give everything he can for that child. Unlike that rich person in the story who left really no inheritance for his family if he even had a family, this father provides everything he can for us, an eternal inheritance, even the kingdom, his own kingdom. While he's still on the throne, he makes his promise to you. Is he ever going to be off the throne? No. So for him to be co-rulers with us through Christ Jesus, that's an amazing provision. Sell that you have and give alms then. Now, I'm not telling you, Jesus is pretty clear to these disciples, especially when it came to upstarting the ministry. Look at Nicodemus, for instance. Nicodemus did sell most of what he had to get that work up and going. God may call us to do that at times as well. I'm not saying never do this, because Jesus says to do it. But he's talking to his, his disciples, and if you look at the context of later on, he talks about it as well. He's connecting it to especially establishing the work, especially supporting the work. Sell what you have and give alms. That is to the alms givers, the ones who are poor. Help them. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. So if you sell everything and then you don't have anything to buy those bags with, then what are you going to buy the bags with, right? So he's not saying you don't have anything, but basically give to those who are in need. Have things that will last for the kingdom's sake and treasure in heaven that faileth not where no thief is going to approach, neither moth corrupt. I mean, our things can vanish really fast, can't they? I remember years ago, I didn't tell this story for many years because I was a little ashamed. I was going up to a Taco Bell checkout line, if you will, or where you paid for the food. And as I was going up there, I didn't notice who was sitting behind my wife in, at the time. Her, her mother and father and her were sitting there. She had her purse beside her there. I just kind of go up, go to pay for the food, get, pick it up. And as I come back, we sit down, we eat. This whole group of people leave. And then after they leave, we're like, where's your purse? She gets up to me. Her purse is gone, right? As fast as I could just walk up to pick up the food inside a restaurant, things were gone. And we all know the panicky feeling you get when you lose a wallet or, or a purse or all of that. So the, the manager's looking through the vault for us. He's showing us the vault. He's showing us, he's letting us, he's unlocking the garbage dumpster to let us look in the dumpster. As quick as I could just walk over to that counter to pick up the items. Her things were gone. That's how fast treasures in this world can vanish. And that's why Jesus is saying, make an eternal investment in others. Make an internal, an eternal investment in the work in such a way that it's not going to wax old. And make sure that that has your focus in the heavens. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So how do I do that? Well, each day I try to spend that time with my Lord himself at the very foot of the monarch of the universe. Then I think of different things I have to do. Maybe with my worldly possessions. Maybe fix this thing around the house or that. I'm like, Lord, please give me your kingdom eyes. I want to 
do this or that, but I want your will to be done. So even on seemingly small things, I say, Lord, please give me your kingdom eyes. Should I do this? Should I do that? And then I try to make sure that as I'm doing that, I keep those kingdom eyes intact because as you're moving along, you might have figured out you made, a, you made a mistake on something. So you want to go back and say, all right, Lord, that didn't seem to be your will. Please help me here. And I'm not talking about investing in the stock market. I'm talking about just general life decisions. For instance, it could be something as simple as, well, should I, should I go get a dog to breed with my other dog so, that, so I can have puppies, you know, sell puppies? Our, our farmers around the area, as I've been walking my dogs, say, we need livestock guardian dogs. Nobody has them around here. Well, what should I do? I'm not going to loan him my dog because it's, you know, it's guarding my sheep. All right, Lord, should I have another dog and breed these dogs and, and basically make them available to the shepherds and the farmers around here? And as I'm praying about that, next thing you know, hey, there's something on Craigslist. I, go, I look around, and, and there's nothing for a long time, and all of a sudden, there it is. I go over there. The person's moving. It's, the price is right. I get this dog. It fit, Eventually, after weeks and weeks, it fits in with our family, and it guards the sheep a lot better than my other guardian dog does. So what was that decision all about? I was saying, Lord, I, I don't just want to go out there and have more animals for the sake of having animals. If it's of help to my family and my neighbors, then I'm willing to do it. Not that they're going to have to pay for that dog, but if they get a puppy, but what can I do through this decision to impact the world for you? And so oftentimes I'm saying, okay, Murray, where, are you, where is your heart in this? Am I, do my spinning habits reflect where my heart is? And God, through this decision, are you shaping me to be the person you'd have me to be? There's something about, I never wanted sheep. Somebody gave me a sheep. And I'm like, well, I can't, one sheep can't be by itself, so I've got to get another one, right? So it's it just begun to go from there, and I'm thinking to myself, Lord, what are you teaching me? Even this morning, as I stuck my hand over the fence, and Shauna came up to me, which she didn't do yesterday. She's a nice one. Kindness is the one that was distant. Now kindness seems to be closer. I'm thinking, Lord, what are you trying to teach me through this sheep? Even the Sabbath morning, what are you trying to teach me through this decision that I've made financially? And so I do that with lots of things as I think back through that situation. Lord, what are you trying to sh- who are you trying to shape me to be through this experience? It could be even if you're paying a bill, for instance, and your bill is incorrect, and somebody of less Christian principles as you would yell that person out and maybe use a few colorful words, but you say, Lord, what can I do to bless this person, even though they've messed up? So that's what I'm talking about. Who are you shaping me to be? And what I also do is I return my tithe and I give my offerings free. This is the closest you'll ever get to a stewardship sermon. And no, it wasn't planned. I was just going through the text and it just, just all flew out at me. And as I think of returning my tithes and offerings, giving, returning tithe, not paying tithe. It's a change of vocabulary if that's where you are. I don't pay tithe. I, I return tithe. And some people say, well, the pastor, he doesn't re- need to return tithe. Why not? Why shouldn't I return tithe? And I'll show you in a minute why I return tithe. I am proud of the tithe. I am proud that it's not, st- and I'm also proud that it's not staying all here locally. And I give offerings more freely than I used to because he has shaped me over the years. And he's allowed me to let go of things. Literally let my hand go of those things that I want to hold on to monetary-wise. And you might be surprised. The impact of your giving will have a huge dividend in eternity. For those of you who are wondering where I'm going with this, out there, 
year, probably back uh, in 2015, March of 2015, you received this, this magazine, some of you. And on the inside of this magazine, it shows you how the local tithe that you return is used here in Northern California. Now, what it didn't show you is how it's all used worldwide. If you want one of these, they're out there on the table. I've got a stack out there, and if you run out, let me know. But this shows you how the Northern California Conference uses it, mostly for ministry. There's some other things as well to support retired ministers and, and church planners in the union. But as you pick that up, recognize that's part of where your local tithe, your tithe goes. It's not just local. But also, if you look at how the tithe is used, 75 to 85% depends on how much that year is voted at annual council from the division and general conference is going to go to the general conference and the union. But typically, if you give $10, about $8 is going to go to your local conference, which is what that magazine outlines out there. And then the rest is going to go, so the other roughly $2, is going to go to the union, which they supervise our schools, our colleges, and they also do church planters. They do a uh, legal counsel if you have a Sabbath work problem. They, they do lots of things through the union that the conferences don't do because the unions are doing them. And then the world church itself, 2 to 8%. And what is out of 2 to 8%? Well, if you look at what's going out of that 2 to 8%, they put money back into the divisions all over the world. So you'd say your tithe in North America goes eventually to the general conference, and then they appropriate different divisions around the world to help with the pastors and the, and the administrators and all of that. They have an, a pretty slim operating budget and administration there. Missionaries are 13% of that, and these other institutions. Those are some of those schools, for instance, Seleucia University and others around the world. They support those as well. So your tithe, 2 to 8% of that, goes global. Now, that's not a whole lot, but that's an, that's an investment that multiplies. If you were to take just 2% of your 10% and put it somewhere else in the world, it can multiply in some of those currencies a lot and go a lot farther than what we can do here locally. And so instead of us hiring a missionary out of your local church budget, we return tithe, and it supports the pastor. It supports, for instance, Jack Peffley, the evangelist. It supports the, the, the teachers at the school up the road. It supports... For instance, Del Dunham came and he helped with our church growth stuff. It supports pastors in this area. And then it goes beyond that and beyond that and beyond that. Worldwide. That's why I give tithe, return tithe, thankfully. Because if you, are, if you have an investment portfolio, you know that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. And this distributes it from the local conference, to the union, to the division, to the world church. And right here is really where the work, frontline missionaries are finishing the work. Those are the ones who will receive basically one of your dollars, one of your dollars per month would be their salary in some countries. So you see, understand how multiplication works. And they're the ones who know the language. They're the ones who know the culture and they know the stories of that area and they go and take the story of Jesus to it. And there are also some who are hired from North America to go to those cultures. But this is how we have a worldwide global work through that. And so it's not just us here at Anderson, one church, right? Like this picture shows. It's more like this, right? That's how our tithe system works. Your local church budget is right here. Your tithe 
is all over the place. And so that's why we say when we go through the baptismal vows, tithe is really not an option for a believer because we believe in the Great Commission. We believe that we're seeking this kingdom and we want to see others with us in that kingdom. So we return tithe out of a grateful heart that we could be a part of that work. And in that process, we have that three angels message that unites us as a worldwide church and we take that message to the world in various nations, languages, peoples, and I believe that's really the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying here. Not saying tithes and offerings is the only way for you to do it, but I'm saying it's one of the ways, besides giving alms, besides helping those around you, besides what, what you do for ministry, this is also a way to do it as well. So it's a way, just one way, to put our treasure where our hearts are. And just like that girl who wanted to fix up her mom and dad's house in the country, we build up the kingdom one new believer at a time through this message. So we want to remember that we're valued, yes, that in God's eyes we are glorious, more glorious than even the flowers of the field. We are children of the king, and therefore we are kingdom seekers. We are to be kingdom seekers. I can't tell you to be a kingdom seeker. You have to be one, and I have to be one. That's between you and the Lord. You being a kingdom seeker is different than acting like one. It's actually you love Jesus, you love the Father, you want to share him with the world around you. And so that's our focus here this morning, is recognizing we're valued, recognizing we're glorious. Therefore, we are kingdom seekers and inviting others to seek it as well. Our closing song is right up that alley. And I'd like to invite you to sing it with me. The words will be up on the screen. And if there's something that's holding you back in your own heart from giving freely the way you should, whether it's, I don't care if it's monetary, I don't care if it's time and service. I don't care if it's, hey, you know what, Lord? I have been pursuing things just to get by. And now today, I want to let that go. I want to seek your kingdom first. I, I will pursue life, but I want to seek your kingdom first. Then I invite you to sing this song to Jesus and say, Lord, I want to hear your story. I want to seek your kingdom. And then I want to tell others about your kingdom. You can stand if you'd like to and tell them that as we sing. Ah. Uh -huh. 
our sins he was tempted, yet was triumphant at last. Tell of the years of his labor, tell of the sorrow he bore. He was despised and rejected, homeless, rejected, and Tell us the story of heaven, that you love us, that we are glorious in your sight, and that we should be seeking your kingdom first above all other things. Thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for the eternal ransom you've paid for us. Help us to share that truth with those around us. We pray in Jesus' name.